We're going to talk about dressing for Sabbath service. It has come up, and it does come up from time to time in local congregations. So I thought, you know, let's just let's just talk about where the where the church is coming from. So dressing for Sabbath services is it still relevant? Now, when we talk about dress over the years, most questions and most concerns over the years and most controversies over clothing at Sabbath services have focused on what women wear. And you know, there's, there's groups out there that are very, very on top of the women in the congregation and they're very focused on, you know, pointing out areas where they're not dressing properly. And you know, it's mostly focused on clothing that's too sexy and then too masculine. Those are the, the big areas, okay, over the, over the decades. But Western culture has shifted. If you haven't noticed, Western culture is shifting dramatically and quickly. And Western culture has shifted such that the subject of men's attire is now a point of debate, especially in a, in a church setting. So many men would very much like to adopt a more casual style of dress. Specifically, they want to do away with jackets and ties. Now, society at large is indeed moving away from jackets and ties for men. You know that, I know that. You go out looking for a jacket and a tie and uh, there aren't as many stores selling them as there used to be. So it's obviously a change that's happening in the culture around us. So why doesn't the Church of God jump on the trend? Why don't we jump on the trend and maybe it would boost our attendance? Actually, <laughs> I think it probably would make a difference in our attendance. Surely God wants me to be comfortable when I'm at Sabbath services. And there are even some arguments, and you know, as I mentioned, this is comes up from time to time. So I'm just going to float out there for you. Some of the arguments that I've heard, uh, one of course is the one I just mentioned, surely God would want me to be comfortable at services. And here's some other ones. These ones came up, and I hadn't, I hadn't heard these in a long time, but there are even some arguments out there that say jackets and ties are a problem at Sabbath services. So here's some I'm going to throw at you. Such modes of dress for men are statements about projecting our economic or social status. Therefore, they should not be part of church life. So it's, it's pride, you know, they're, they're proud. So that, we, that shouldn't be part of what we do at church. Church is a place where there is no Jew, no Greek, no slave, no free, et cetera, et cetera, right? Everybody's um, on the same level playing field. So another argument that's out there is that such modes of dress are merely traditions of men, which, yes, indeed, that is exactly what they are. Why do we have stuff, the, the kind of clothing that we have? Well, it's traditions of, of human society. So these are traditions of men which the church should not perpetuate because they're demonstrations, again, of pride and social distinction. The scripture I've got, I thought was worth reading on that one, is James 1, because I heard heard someone use this as a scriptural rationale for that argument. No, sorry, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, not chapter 1, chapter 2. It says, My brothers and sisters, believers, 
in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, well, you, you, you stand over here. You sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, I would have to look into that word. I didn't, I should have looked into that word filthy because I don't, I don't think that that's a good translation of it, but because uh, I think God has something to say about cleanness and, and filthy clothes. So that's a scripture that was used to say, you know, we shouldn't give any thought to what people wear because that's all about economic class distinction and stuff like that. However, I think it's a kind of a weak argument because it could just as easily, you know, in our setting, be talking about someone who shows up in a really fancy suit, you know, a fancy Armani suit. And you now here's some other guy, he shows up in a, you know, something he bought at Walmart, a jacket and a tie he bought at Walmart, and you can tell the difference. And yeah, you know, one guy's higher status than the other guy. It could just be talking about that kind of thing. So I don't think that's a super strong argument. Showing favoritism to a man in an expensive jacket and tie, and then you know, disrespecting a man in a cheap jacket and tie, that would fit into that scripture as well, wouldn't it? Here's one more, one more uh, argument. This is one I've heard probably the most, which is that God only really cares about what is in our heart and our attitudes. And our, what's in our hearts and our attitude is not connected to the clothing that we wear. You might have heard that. I've heard that more often than any of the others. So a scripture that would go with that would be Matthew 23. And verse 27. Uh, Jesus has a lot of things to say to the, uh, the teachers of the day, the Pharisees, the scribes, and so forth, and uh, most of it was kind of critical, well, very critical, actually. And in verse 27, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. The scriptures also use the whitewash for whitewashed walls, you know, where the wall is rotten underneath and you cover it with whitewash and you make it look good. In our society, we don't use whitewash anymore really that much, but you could have this wall where there's all kinds of, you know, termites or something like that and you just sort of, you know, cover it over with some paint, sell your house and then walk away. You know, you're, you're covering it over with, with something that's fake. So we don't want to be like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Do we? We don't want that. No, no, no. Uh, he called them whitewashed walls, hypocrites who looked good on the outside, but were inwardly bad. We don't want that. And I don't think that we have a, you know, any um, confusion in our minds that somehow if I manage to you know, clean myself up every Saturday and present myself at Sabbath services looking decent, that that makes me a decent human being. Anybody got that? idea in their head? No. But we want to be careful of that. So those are some of the arguments that I've heard. All right. So what does the Bible say and not say about clothing? What does the Bible, isn't that a good place to go? Don't you think? 
What does the Bible say and not say? Okay, so let me lay this on you right up front. There is no explicit command in the Bible for us to wear certain types of clothing to services. None whatsoever. Whether that's jackets, ties, or whether it's robes or togas or tunics or dresses or pantyhose. You don't have that down here in the south so much, but up north women wear pantyhose, right? And they complain about their pantyhose. Or it could be sandals versus open-toed shoes. You know, and some people get uh, very, very agitated about how high the heels are on, on people's shoes. Uh, the scripture doesn't say anything about any of this stuff. So what does the Bible say and not say? What does the Bible actually tell us? Well, what scripture does is it gives us precedence. It gives us examples. It gives us principles. And it lays out some expectations for us. That's what scripture does. God leaves us to our own devices when it comes to what we wear. What we wear is not something that comes from the Bible. And uh, it, it, you know, <laughs> he's left us to do a lot of things on our own, you know, types of government and entertainment, you know, and he lets us go into all kinds of things that really aren't good for us, okay? He lets us make up our minds about what we want to wear too. And what we have, what we wear now is basically our own design. We came up with this, okay? How we dress, uh, especially for a special occasion, well, that comes and goes through the decades and through the centuries. I mean, I could have made a slideshow that, you know, passed you through all the centuries and showed you what, what special dressing for a special occasion looked like over the centuries. And, you know, you might have seen something like that before. It changes a lot over the centuries. You know, you look back a few centuries ago and you see guys wearing leotards. You know, like, whoa, not me, dude, no way. You know, and those, those big frilly collars that look like a coffee filter, you know. And things have changed a lot over the years. And, you know, basically we're just in a certain cultural moment. And I've put it to you that given it enough time, jackets and ties will disappear. They will go away. I don't know how much time we have to wait for those kind of changes, but I'm pretty convinced that it will go away. But, you know, the principle of dressing for the occasion, that's not going to go away. It's never gone away. I think we're entering into a limbo period where we're sort of between one thing and another and we don't really know where we stand. But uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that. So I said what Scripture gives us is precedents, principles, examples, and expectations. Basically things that can be applied no matter what the cultural moment that you find yourself in. Whether you're in a situation where men all wear leotards and coffee filters around their necks or jackets and ties. Dressing for an occasion is a principle that does not go away. And they're applicable no matter where you live because also dressing for the occasion is different when you're in different parts of the world. So these principles will apply whether you live in Indonesia, or Nigeria, or North Carolina. And many of the examples that I'm going to use, because I will, I will start looking at scripture, because we are going to look at what the Bible says. 
Many of the examples I want to use, they go back to the Old Testament. This is a really long way back. And man, did they ever dress differently back then, okay? And, you know, because I'm citing Old Testament verses, that's a potential for people to say, well, you know, <laughs> those are not relevant. You know, they're not relevant to, to today. They're not relevant to the New Covenant either. And they don't really apply to us. But I think that's not the way to look at the Old Testament. You know, if you've been around long enough, you know that's what I think. It is good for us to remember that when the New Covenant Church began, the Old Testament Scriptures were all they had. This is how they preached Christ with the Old Testament Scriptures. The truth is there in the Scriptures. You have to know how to deal with the Old Testament Scriptures in light of the New, New Covenant, the New Testament. But the principles that we're going to look at, most of them are going to come out of the Old Testament. So, you know, times and circumstances, they have changed a lot since, what was it, 3,500 years ago? But the principles, the examples, and the expectations that I'm going to look at were and still are relevant to how we conduct our lives and relevant to how we present ourselves to God, which is a more narrow focus and what we're going to talk about more at length. Appearing before God. That's the mountain and the clouds and the lightning and all that stuff. Go with me to Exodus 19. So, that's the mountain, Mount Sinai. I know it's kind of cartoony. Exodus 19 and verse 10. Exodus 19 and verse 10. Now, the people had come out of Egypt. That was done. They had uh, crossed through the Red Sea. And now they were going to be given the Ten Commandments. God was going to appear. And they saw clouds. They saw the lightning. And they heard the sound of a voice like a trumpet. Okay, this is what they were going to experience. But God had some instructions for them prior to this encounter, if you will. And we're going to just take a look at two verses. All of chapter 19 is basically God's instructions about preparing the people to be there at the foot of the mountain and hear and witness this giving of the Ten Commandments. So verse 10 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and have them wash their clothes, and have them ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. How about verse 14? They did some other stuff. You know, they set up basically crowd control barriers and stuff like that. Uh, verse 14, after Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. So that's part of the preparation. They also, like I said, they, they built barriers and they got some warnings about not coming too close and they were to abstain from sexual relations. But here you are, before the people, they were to come before the living God, Yahweh, to hear the Ten Commandments. This is big stuff, okay? This is, a, this is a turning point in human history. And God wants them to be properly prepared. And he told Moses to consecrate them, to sanctify them, okay? And that word there, uh, consecrate, sanctify, is uh, Kodesh. That's like a Hebrew rendition of the word Kodesh. Okay? And you see this word Kodesh all over the place in Scripture. Sanctify, 
To make holy, it means the same thing. Consecrate. And it means to make or declare or prepare something or someone and make them clean morally and or ceremonially, okay? To set them apart, to sanctify, to set apart for holy purpose. God's purposes. That's what was going on at the foot of the mountain. And you see this word used in other places. For example, God sanctifies the Sabbath day. God sanctifies the priest. He sanctifies the sacrifice and so forth. This is the word Kodesh. But here he's sanctifying these people. And he wants them sanctified and set apart. And I think, isn't it interesting that to sanctify them for this special occasion, they were to wash their clothes. <laughs> he wanted them to do their laundry. Be clean. Make your clothes clean before you come before me. Now, surely, surely at a moment like this, God was more concerned with the state of their heart, wasn't he? Than their clothes. Surely that's what God was really interested in, the state of their heart, wasn't he? Did they be properly respectful in coming into his presence? But he chose something about their clothes to signify this. To signify what was going on within. That's clearly what's going on. Take a look at Exodus 28. Because just because you've done your laundry doesn't mean that you have a right heart before God, does it? No. So let's take a look at Exodus 28, verses 1 through 5. And this is about the priests and their clothing. It says, Have Aaron, your brother, Moses' brother, brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithmar, so they may serve me as priests and make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Dignity and honor. And tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such manners that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so that he may serve me as priest. And these are the garments they are to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. And they are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons so they may serve me as priests. Have them use gold and blue, purple and scarlet yarn, and fine linen. So those people who were serving before Yahweh were held to a very high standard of dress. Okay, now th there you do have specifics, and there are other places in Scripture you can look where there are some more specifics about exactly what these clothes were to look like. Uh, but the point that I, the principle that I want to draw out there is that those who were serving Yahweh, those who went into the tabernacle, they went into the tent of meeting, and they, you know, and the high priest, of course, would go to the Holy of Holies. These people had to be dressed a certain way. And God told them, you know, you be dressed this way. Now, surely, God was more concerned with the moral standards of their lives than he was about their clothes, wasn't he? 
he wanted them to live he wanted them to live very upright lives to be very closely following the commands of righteousness mercy judgment surely that was god's main concern was it not but notice god's use of clothing to signify outwardly what should be happening inwardly. And there are plenty of other places you can see that, and you can see that in the New Testament. We'll come around to some of those. Robes of righteousness. I'll come around to that later. Let's, let's go to Numbers 8. We'll stay in the Old Testament. Numbers 8, verse 21 And uh, 21 and 22. Okay, more instructions uh, for Moses. The Levites, they were to come. Well, let me back up to verse 20. Moses, Aaron, and the whole Israelite community did with the Levites just as the Lord commanded Moses. The Levites purified themselves and washed their clothes. And then Aaron presented them as a wave offering before the Lord and made atonement for them to purify them. So here's an example where the, the Levites were gathered and presented to Yahweh, the great living God. And the Levites were to take the place of the firstborn sons. That's, that's kind of what's going on here. And they're presented to God as, you know, firstborn offering. And before they did that, God said they need to be cleaned up. They need to do their laundry. They need to be, have clean clothes, okay? So once again, I think, you know, here we're seeing clothing as being used in a symbolic way. Okay, one more. We'll get out of the Pentateuch. Let's go to Ezekiel. And chapter 42. Let's go, boom. Let's go forward into the millennium. How about that? Let's go into the millennium. And we'll take a look at the new temple, the temple that uh, is going to be there when Christ returns. Uh, that's cool. That's a big separation in time. So now we're going forward into the future. Ezekiel 42 verse 14 says, uh, Once the priests enter the holy precincts, they are not to go into the outer court until they leave behind the garments in which they minister. For these are holy, and they are to put on other clothes before they go near the places that are for the people. So as I mentioned, the setting here is the millennial temple. So this is forward into the future, okay? And like before, those who ministered before God, they'll have special clothes, okay? Notice that they were not to wear the same clothes for common activities. So they would not take the garments that had been designed for when they served before God and, you know, wear them out to the football game. They didn't, that, no, God says, no, no, no. Their garments were special clothes for a particular service, okay? Particular function. Therefore, the principle, I, be, I believe the principle that we're looking at here is that God wanted them to make a distinction a distinction between clothes that they would wear when they came before him and what they wore when they were out gardening. So I've talked a little about, about this as we go along. What guidance are we getting from these examples? 
Okay, what guidance are we getting from these examples? Now look, the instructions related to the priesthood are part of the old covenant. And we are not bound by the rules that regulated the priesthood. No, no, no. We've gone through this in great detail a couple of times here, uh, particularly in the book of Hebrews. When there's a change to the law, there's a change to the priesthood too. The old priesthood is not in place. It is a different setup. Christ is the high priest. So we are not bound by these specific rules. But they do establish principles that we can use. The principles that are behind these are still very appropriate, meaningful, and helpful for us today. They establish something we can act on. We are to make a separation between what is common and what is holy. And the Sabbath day is holy, not common. And the assembly that we are called to on the seventh day is a holy assembly, not a common assembly. So principle-wise, let's take two biggies. One, to come before Yahweh, the living God, with respect. And respect is twofold. I think. There's two aspects of respect. One, it's an attitude that you have in your heart. You know? It's the way you actually feel inside. Two, it is a discernible display of that attitude. I mean, you know very well that someone can walk up to you and they can... uh, They could be dressed for the occasion, you know. Maybe they're at a wedding, you know, and you see them at a wedding. But they can convey to you disrespect. You can sense their attitude. They're both important, though. I mean, someone can have a good attitude, but they're not dressed properly. Well, that kind of shows disrespect, doesn't it? They might have the right attitude, but they show up at your special occasion they're not appropriately dressed, well, that shows disrespect for you, doesn't it? So they go together, attitude and display. Uh, Go to Genesis 22, verse 12. This takes us back to the sequence where Abraham is told, okay, I want you to sacrifice your, your son, Isaac. And in chapter 22, verse 12, We'll just zoom in on, on verse 12. We won't read through the whole sequence here. But Abraham is going to go ahead with it because God told him to. And God stops him in the last minute and says, okay, stop, don't. Don't do that. And then in verse 12, we'll read, he says, don't lay a hand on the boy. Stop. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. So God, well, he's concerned with the attitude, right? But he didn't just like basically do a mind probe on Abraham, you know, grab his head and read his thoughts and, and, ah, now I know what Abraham's like. That's not how God operated, did he? No. God looked at what Abraham did. 
God is very much focused on the concrete reality of what people do. And, you know, we have this saying that goes along in our society, well, God knows my heart. Yes, he does. But he also wants to see what you're going to do. So you want both at the same time. God's very demanding. He wants both. <laughs> he wants both. So the other principle I've got up here is come before the great living God, Yahweh, with appropriate attire. Now, I'm not telling you what to wear. Just appropriate attire, okay? So the principles that we got, I think we can glean from those. Appropriate attire will be clean. We saw a couple of times when they were told, wash your clothes, say so they will be clean, and they will not be the same clothing used for common activities. Emily, do you think I'm safe on those? As far as general principles coming from, from Scripture? I think, I think so. I hope so. And that addresses another argument, which I did not mention already, which I've also heard, and you may have heard. And it goes kind of like this. Hey, everybody stopped wearing jackets and ties at the office, so I should stop wearing them to Sabbath services. You know, people dress like a bum at work. So, you know, I should too. I, you know, shorts, sandals, t-shirts. So that's the new normal, right? But I put it to you that what we wear to work has never been the deciding factor for what we wear at a holy convocation. That's never been the reason why we wear what we wear. Otherwise, welders would show up in um, overalls. That's not the why we do what we do. I don't know if you've ever heard that argument, but it's pretty common. No. So there's no biblical support for the idea that it is appropriate to come before God in a casual manner. Okay? That, I think, is clear. But I'm not going to tell you what you can, should, or must wear. That takes us to our next segment, which is administrative decisions. Okay, what passes for dressing for the occasion in Nigeria, this is a guy from Nigeria, is very different from what it was in the United States, or is in the United States, okay? And what people in Indonesia wear to visibly demonstrate respect is different than Nigeria, and it's different from the United States, okay? And what we wear is based on the culture we are a part of. I was at the feast, this is probably about 20 years ago, and I was in Florida, Panama City, Florida, and there was a guy, and he, he walked up and he looked just like this. And he was, he was walking into services, and I looked at him and I thought, cool, he looks really comfortable. <laughs> You know, yeah, he fit, you know, the Florida weather, yeah. And it was pretty cool. But I could tell, look, the guy's wearing this because it's his way of showing respect and dressing for the occasion. But it was not what we wear. So let's talk about the United States because, I mean, we're not in Nigeria or Indonesia, right? Oh, and by the way, before I go too far, I think all these principles and so forth are applicable to women as well. It's just that women have different concerns, you know? 
Uh, it's funny. Men seem to me, it's more about men have to show respect and women have to show modesty. But I think there's, you know, there's potential for it to extend into other areas. But I think all these principles apply to all of us, male or female. But it's kind of nice to hear the guys being picked on, isn't it? Once in a while? Yeah. Okay, so what's happening in the United States? Where are we in this cultural moment? Well, clearly, cultural norms are unraveling in the United States. That is pretty obvious. We are entering a sort of transitional limbo where we don't really know what the rules are. But for the time being, when a man wants to make a favorable impression to, say, a judge or a congressional hearing, he puts on a jacket and tie, doesn't he? When the head dude at Facebook had to be talking to, was it Congress or Senate? Congress? Yeah, he had to face the Congress. And, you know, he's famous for wearing T-shirts. He's a billionaire CEO and he wears T-shirts all the time. He didn't wear a T-shirt when he went up to Congress. Why? Because he wanted to make a favorable impression, right? Yeah, he was trying to come off looking as good as he could. Now, using the principles of dress that we have just covered, the United Church of God says that we would like those who are speaking and song leading to wear a jacket and a tie, and that's what we do. You see that every week. The men who get up here are wearing a jacket and a tie. And, you know, my personal thought is that it would be best to also know, approach this to uh, opening and closing prayers and other things. But the uh, church ruling is those who are speaking or song leading. That's what we do. Beyond that, I'm going to lay something big on you. Beyond that, there is no dress code at UCG. There is no dress code. And I don't know how many times I've heard people talk about, oh, if only we didn't have to dress, blah, blah, blah. It'd be so much better. There's no dress code at the United Church of God. I hope you know that. There's no dress code here. We don't, uh, because look, if there was a dress code, then we would have to enforce it. <laughs> right? There's no dress code here. But our duty as ministry and teachers is to point out the biblical principles. Okay? But there's no dress code here. We don't have a dress code. The only exception, the only exception that we have as far as dress code is concerned at present is Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, which basically says, men do not wear women's clothes and women do not wear men's clothes. That's basically our dress code, other than the jacket and tie for speakers and song leaders. That's the only one you can really come up with that's biblically, you know, talking about actual. But you know what? Even when you get into that, that too is culturally conditioned, isn't it? Because what's considered strictly for women, strictly for men, actually differs from culture to culture. There's some things that are standard, but there's a lot that's just really slippery. And you don't really have hard and fast rules. But I'll tell you what. Everybody knows when the rule's being broken. Don't we? 
Everybody knows. Everybody knows. It's like the judge who was asked to, you know, say, define what's pornography, and he said, because they were, you know, using that example of, well, what's, you know, art and what's pornography, and he said, I know when I see it. I know when I see it. It's just one of those things. Everybody knows. Okay, so what should we do? What should we do? Well, as I mentioned, American culture is very quickly shedding all outward displays of respect. Think about it. You can go home and think about this. But I put it to you that our culture is very quickly getting rid of all outward displays of respect. Respect for office, respect for occasions, respect for other fellow human beings, respect for gender. All this stuff's being done away with. You can see it happening around you all the time. And adopting that way of thinking, it's bad for your heart and your mind and your soul. That is not a good way to think. Doing away with every outward display of respect is not a godly way of thinking and it's not going to be the approach that Christ takes when he returns. So people who let themselves walk down that path too far are going to have to basically walk back. And it might not be fun. We are called and instructed to be different from the people around us and not conforming ourselves to the world around us, aren't we? Isn't that what the scriptures say? So let's take a look at uh, Matthew 22. As far as conforming yourselves, uh, Romans 12 would be a good one. You know, don't conform yourselves to the ways of this world. But let's take a look at Matthew 22 and verses 1 through 14. So the uh, parable of the wedding banquet. Wedding's a special occasion, right? But it's also one that has spiritual implications because it also could lead you to talking about the marriage of the Lamb, right? So here we are with this, this uh, proverb, and it says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, and he said this, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. And he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. And then he sent more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention, and they went off, one to his field, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. And the king was enraged, and he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to the servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Now clearly he's talking about Israel. They were the initial invitees, and they blew it. So the wedding banquet is ready. But to those I've invited, they don't deserve to come. So go, verse 9, to the street corners and invite, the, invite to the banquet anyone you find. Y'all come. So the servants went into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. 
Then the king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, many are called, but few are chosen. Now look, it is obvious that the parable is speaking about being spiritually prepared for Christ's return. That is obvious, isn't it? Obviously. To be clothed in robes of righteousness is a symbol that we see. You see it a lot in the book of Revelation, for example. To be clothed in white robes of righteousness. It's talking about spiritually being prepared for Christ's return. It's about how you live, right? But notice again the use of clothing as an analogy for the state of a person's soul. Both Old and New Testament use clothing as an outward symbol of what's going on inside. Clothing's weird. If you've ever thought about clothing, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Why do we wear clothes? I mean, if we just evolved, you know, we climbed up out of the slime pits, why did we get rid of all our fur if we needed it to stay warm? And why do we have clothes? And why do we cover our, our uh, sex organs? Shouldn't we be showing them off? Because clothes are given to us by God. Clothes are highly symbolic. We still use clothing today, in our own day, to say something and to make a statement about how we see ourselves and how we want to be seen by others. So we should all ask ourselves, what do our clothes say about us? And again, this applies to both men and women. Cultures changed over the centuries, and it's going to change again. And if we're around long enough, it could change multiple, multiple times. And jackets and ties will probably disappear for men. I personally kind of hope so. But I don't know what they're going to be replaced with either. Because I don't think that um, we'll have nothing. Look, I don't find jackets and ties practical or comfortable. I don't. Never have. They're too hot in the summer and they're not warm enough in the winter. Right? I personally like the flowing robes. I'm in with this. <laughs> he looks great. Uh, he looks comfortable. I'm down with that. But I don't know. But for the time being in the United States, jacket and attire are still a recognized cultural way to visibly demonstrate respect. Bummer. But that's what we've got. And without it, men don't really have a culturally recognized way to visibly display respect. How do you display respect to someone? It's hard. How would you do that? Okay, so one more thought. Does expense convey respect? This is another argument. I've actually heard this too. Some people think that wearing expensive clothes shows respect. Right? Hey, these are expensive clothes. I paid a lot of money for these clothes. This is showing respect. I was willing to open my wallet and pay all this money and buy these clothes. That's, that's showing respect, isn't it? But a pair of acid-washed jeans with designer tears in just the right places 
topped off with a beautiful black leather bomber jacket and finished with some serious combat boots, might be the most expensive and best clothes in your wardrobe. But do they visibly display respect? I looked up prices of these things, you know, for moderate to expensive things. What it would cost you? So there's like a $400 outfit. Does that display respect? No, everybody knows that that is carefully curated to create the opposite effect, isn't it? But they spent a lot of money. I mean, you can go out. When I first started attending, I first met with a member of the ministry, and I, I was young. I was about, I think I was 24, 25 years old. And we talked, and you know, they saw me, and they, I, I don't think they wanted me at services right away. So they said, well, what about this? You're doing this? You're doing that? Yep, yep, yep. And so they were kind of like, oh, okay, I think you need to come to services. And as they were getting ready to go, the guy looked at me and said, one more thing, because I was just wearing a t-shirt, you know. He said, you're going to need a jacket and a tie. This is back, you know, this is back in the 80s. And I was like, oh, really? Oh. I wasn't, I wasn't shocked, but I went out, I, I was pretty low to the ground in those days, and I went out, and I went to the Salvation Army, and I bought a tie, I think it cost me a dollar, and I bought a jacket, and I think it cost me five or ten bucks, and I, I went to services, you know. Was I wearing the finest clothes in the room? Absolutely not. But I basically caved, right? I didn't want to wear them. I caved and I wore them. And it was a way of showing respect, I suppose. So, that simple jacket in the closet might not have cost as much as this ensemble that this guy's wearing. But which one is appropriate for the occasion? Appropriate for the occasion. So, what is pleasing to God? And you know, I would, I, you know, if someone walked in with a black leather jacket and torn jeans, we wouldn't kick them out, would we? But you know what? Here's another one. I'm going away from my notes. I hope this doesn't blow it. But another thing, you know, people will come, and we don't say anything about their clothes, but they feel uncomfortable. You know what I mean? See all the guys here looking good, dressing for the occasion, and someone comes in and they don't feel comfortable. I don't feel comfortable there. No one ever said anything about your clothes. No one's ever told you you can't wear them, shouldn't wear them. I hope I don't want you to think that that's what I'm telling people right now. What we want as a church is we want people to come to their own conclusions about what they are going to do and not do. And as a church, you know, we definitely, as a body here in a congregation, you know, we're going to set a good example for people. You know, and I've seen that with men and women. I remember a good friend of mine, a girl came into the church, this is a long time ago, and she was clearly super sexy, you know, and, and she was showing it, you know, sexy. And all the women in the church, they didn't say anything to her, 
But it was funny, to, not funny, it was good to see her just kind of change over the months until she looked very different, you know, maybe a year or two later. And the church, and this is going back to the 80s, the bad old days, right, when everybody was evil and mean. The church just let her figure it out. There were a couple of, there were, like, she once went to a beach party where, like, whoa, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, this is a little too much. But for the most part, and that, but that was after several years, but for the most part, the church just let her work it all out by herself. And that's what the church does. It has. And, you know, sometimes you'll get some people who take it upon themselves, like the Lone Ranger, to, you know, say, charge, and we're going to start telling people what to do and what not to do as far as dress is concerned. But like I said last week when we were talking about the Trinity, when there's no explicit command one way or the other, what should we do? Stay silent. If you don't have anything, you can just turn to a scripture that says exactly that. You've got to be careful. So anyways, what is pleasing to God? What is pleasing to God? What can you or I do or give to God. <laughs> he created all things. He owns all things. He does not need your money. He does not need your gold or silver. He doesn't want your crops or livestock. That's not what God is looking for. What does he want? He wants your heart and mind. He wants you to love him and respect his ways and demonstrate that love and respect in tangible ways ways that he can see, that other people can see, that you can see in yourself. You know, words and deep thoughts are great, and God wants words, and he wants deep thought, but the living God is also very interested in concrete reality, like with Abraham. Now I know, Abraham, because I've watched you, and I've seen you. Now I know. And the Old Testament makes extensive use of, of this kind of teaching and instruction. And one of the ways that it does teach something about what is pleasing to God is through offerings, sacrifices and offerings, okay? And it's another way of something you do outwardly that symbolizes what is going on within you. God doesn't need sheep, gold. He doesn't need any of this stuff. The offering is about what's going on inside the person. And giving an offering was a display or a witness or a willingness to give something up to demonstrate your attitude before God. And that principle has not changed. Go to Malachi 1. Malachi 1, verse 6 through 9. God has, he's basically correcting the people here in um, Israel, restored Israel. And he talks to them about their offerings. And he says in uh, Matthew, or sorry, Malachi 1, verses 6 through 9, A son honors his father and a slave his master. So if I am a father, where is the honor due to me? And if I am the master, where's the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty. I mean, people, we all take advantage of God because he is so patient. It's you priests who show contempt for my name. But then you ask, oh, how did we show contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. Then you ask, well, how have we defiled you? 
by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible when you offer blind animals for sacrifice. Is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor or your leader, you know, your judge, your congressional committee. Would they be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now look, have you ever roasted a lame lamb? Anyone ever roasted a lame lamb? How would you know? Surely the meat of a lame or a blind lamb tastes the same as the other lambs, right? The pleasing smell of the smoke rising up from the altar tastes the same or smells the same whether the animal is blind or lame, right? Smells the same. So what's the difference? What's God complaining about? What's he dissatisfied with? This, the, the difference is the heart of the giver, isn't it? The heart of the giver. What they're doing is an outward display of what's going on within them. That's what God's dissatisfied with. Now, go back to Leviticus. Last verse, we'll just close with this. Okay? Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3. Okay. But it says, Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, those guys who got those great costumes and they were consecrated and they were going to work in the tabernacle, they took their censers and they put fire in them and they added incense and they offered unauthorized fire. See, there's some rules about how they could supply the altar with coals for fire. They didn't follow them. Later on, you find out it's because they'd been drinking wine. So they were slackers, okay? And they weren't following the rules. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came up from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. And, the Mo and then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. And in the sight of all the people, the sight, when people can see, how I'm treated visibly in the sight of all the people, I will be honored. 